Hello, scribes and scribblers and subtractionists. I'm Grant Faulkner, Executive Director of National Novel Writing Month, joyful but struggling writer, and I'm with my co-host, Brooke Warner, publisher of She Writes Press, writer, book coach, mom, and I don't know. I know your other things as well, Brooke. Is there anything else you'd like to include? Uh, Author champion, avid reader, friend. And other things as well, I bet. <laughs> um, I ask because the theme of today's episode is omission, omission as a craft technique and omission as an existential theme, meaning the way we all exist amidst many stories and some of them omitted stories and omitted selves. And in fact, I think untold stories form our world as much as told stories. It's one of my favorite subjects as a fiction writer. I often talk about how telling stories is a fundamental part of being human, but the corollary to that is keeping stories to ourselves is also a fundamental part of being human. And then that lovely, scary, intriguing drama that happens when a story breaks out and is revealed to the world. And that's the topic of Charmaine Wilkerson's new novel, Black Cake. A mother leaves a slice of her famous black cake for her two children after she dies, but she also leaves some stories to reckon with as well. But let's start, Brooke, with the uh, the craft side of a mission, which is also part of Charmaine's storytelling technique. I think the most famous quote on omission comes from Ernest Hemingway, who said, if a writer of prose knows enough about what he is writing about, he may omit things that he knows. And the reader, if the writer is writing truly enough, will have a feeling of those things as strongly as though the writer had stated them. The dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one eighth of it being above water. And I think if I could could only pass on 10 quotes about craft to a writer, I think this one would be among the 10 and maybe even towards the top. And I said that because, you know, knowing how to use omission in a story helps build suspense and helps engage the reader's imagination in really exciting and meaningful ways. And I might posit that the best stories are the ones where the reader is almost a co-author, you know, actively kind of eating up hints uh, that the author provides and filling in the gaps with their own storytelling imagination. But that said, I think a mission is just super hard to master. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of experimentation. It probably takes a lot of years in the end. So, Brooke, I'm curious, what's your take on the craft of a mission, especially perhaps as it relates to memoir, which now that I'm thinking about it, I think memoir relies on revelation perhaps more than fiction does. Or is that true? Yeah, all of this is such good material. Omission is so central to writing. It actually makes me think a lot about its connection to subtext because we thought of that same Ernest Hemingway quote when we brought on E.J. Coe. I hope people who did not hear that uh, episode will go back and listen to it because it's so good. And these two things kind of go hand in hand. You can't include it all. So that's certainly true of memoir and fiction in any genre. You know, revision is a constant act of pruning and making better and refining all of it. And I've talked so much on the show about my love for Kiese Lehman, uh, but I did have the great privilege of having him teach for me recently on my Magic of Memoir program last month. And I was really taken by him talking about his process of refining his characters. He got granular about how he writes and writes and writes. And then he sits back and asks himself, okay, well, what of all of these things that I just wrote would be interesting to my reader? You know, he was kind of talking specifically about characters, but he said, just because this thing or these many things about a person I know, right, because his personal true story of memoir is interesting to me, doesn't mean that all of these things are going to be interesting to my readers. And so that's a way that I was thinking about working with omission to be discerning with every single part of our books, you know, it's not easy to do that, of course, because 
I think about my writers that I work with and it's the effort of generating that is the focus, of course, right? You're working to create words and omission is all about what you're not going to include. So I think about that as being the opposite of generative and that can be something that certainly people find challenging. And when I was thinking about today, the image that came to mind was a negative exposure in photography. You know, like when you get that crazy intense contrast of black on white and the opposite things are exposed, I think that's a nice visual for what we're talking about today with omission. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. I love that. And I think subtraction can be more difficult than addition, which anyone who has ever tried to declutter a house or clean out a closet Marie Kondo style knows. (laughs) And the same goes for storytelling. You know, pruning a story, another metaphor I love, uh, it can feel as counterintuitive as pruning a tree, meaning that, that it can... At least when I prune trees, it kind of seems harmful <laughs> to cut a branch, you know, but pruning is, is necessary for the health of a tree to encourage its growth and encourage more flower and fruit production. And the thing I like most about emission, which I think applies to pruning as well, is how it brings you closer to your story. And this is what, why it's, I think, really hard to master is that you have to notice, you know, it's very intuition based, I guess. You have to notice a story's shape, its contours, its arc. You have to feel its energy and essentially to it what hints and information to leave and what can be taken away. And omission in the end is a form of creation. I think sometimes we forget that, that what's left out creates a world that's a little bit haunted. It attunes you as the, you know, as both the writer and the reader to the implied and the unsaid and the unseen. And that puts the reader in the position of imagining the unwritten thought that is present in its way, which makes it more exciting for the reader, I think. So now, though, though, I want to shift to to the more um, thematic nature of a mission. Brooke, do you have any thoughts on novels or memoirs built around a story that's hidden? It's so fascinating to me um, how there can be a story present among people and kind of determining their actions, yet being completely unknown or unmentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, comes to mind uh, two of our guests, right? Um, Ashley Ford, author of Somebody's Daughter, and Danny Shapiro's, uh, who was on the show talking about secrets um, with her book Inheritance. And Ashley's story, as people remember, because she was on so recently, is built around her father's absence. Danny's is, too, in a totally different way, which, you know, was the sense that her biological piece of this puzzle was missing. That She never knew that her father was not, in fact, her biological father, and that's its own form of absence. And so silence and secrecy really play into omission, um, I think I teach my memoirists, especially my six-month class, how silence speaks louder than words on the page. And we, as writers, often think we have to fill every single space with people's reactions. And, you know, with character development, you have to do this, that, and the other. But secrecy and quiet things and giving open space is an art form all itself. And actually, Charmaine's going to speak to that. So it's on point for today's conversation. And, of course, secrecy is omission. You know, it's really... When I think about it, most memoirs do center omission because there's so much secrecy that draws people to uncover what's happening um, in their lives and therefore write a memoir about it. And so I just think it's interesting to think about why people omit in the first place. 
they do it to protect themselves. They do it to look good. They do it to have control of the narrative. They might do it to manipulate. Uh, probably also important to say they might be doing it to protect other people too. Uh, and there's just so much about omission that's central to human behavior. And so it's a really good topic to ruminate on for your own writing. Like where and how have you omitted in your own life? How have acts of omission impacted your decisions? Uh, and where maybe you've ended up. And I'm thinking about things like cheating, betrayals, lying, just all the many ways that human beings hurt each other. And all of those things have omission at the core. And since this is the stuff of life, it's the stuff of good story too. Yeah, I love that. And I love your question of asking yourself where and how you've omitted something in your life, you know, just as a way to think about omission. Because sometimes I think we just do it without thinking about it too much. And and uh, it, it is a part of all of our lives uh, for various, all the various reasons you, you mentioned. And I think memoirs might be best suited to be centered around an untold story, but there are also plenty of novels. I wish I had time to like really think about the novels uh, that, that are centered this way and make a list of them. But I was thinking one of those novels, always considered one of the best American novels, uh, The Great Gatsby is all about a hidden identity, of course, which, which makes it, you know, it's, it's such a noted American novel, I think, because we are a country of people that have come here in part or, or it's centered around um, creating ourselves anew. And one way to do that is to admit who you once were. And so, you know, I think the novel has a brilliance in how it never truly reveals exactly who Jake Gatsby is. So we have to wonder about, you know, how he lied his way to his position and, and the fact that he exists in a lie. He exists in omission. He has no grounding of a story. And then I'm also thinking about Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. And, you know, when this novel opens, we find out that 16-year-old Lydia is dead. And then the rest of the story is a loop from past to present about how Lydia's parents and two siblings have been keeping all their most important thoughts and information about her, you know, a secret from the rest of the family. So we live in secrets. And then I'll offer just one more. And this one's a memoir from my friend Jasmine Darznick, uh, The Good Daughter, which is a memoir. And, uh, you know, while Jasmine was helping her mother move after her father's death, she discovered a photograph of her mother wearing a wedding veil. But the man standing next to her wasn't Jasmine's father. And at first, her mother, you know, refused to discuss the photo. Uh, but then she sends a series of uh, 10 cassette tapes that tell the story of her abusive first marriage, as well as a sister Jasmine never knew that she had. So hmm. if you want a definition of drama and a mission, that is it. No kidding. And I mean, that's why I'm saying it's just life. And these are human stories. Um, and I think it's why writers too are so drawn to untold stories, right? There's a reason they're untold. And then if we choose to tell them, we have to reckon with that too. And these questions, who else is impacted when we tell our untold stories? And how will unearthing what was previously unspoken or even unknown to you change you or change your relationships and even change history? Uh, you know, certainly what you're talking about there with a sister you never knew you had. And we see stuff like that surfacing all the time with all this DNA information that we have available to us. And there's a transgressive element to it, too. Uh, but I think in writing, transgressive is almost always empowering uh, as long as you're conscious of who else is in your wake. I love that phrase, writing the transgressive is almost always empowering. If we made a list of 10 right-minded rules for writing, I think that would be high on the list. Um, so I'm looking forward to unearthing such stories with Charmaine Wilkerson after this short break.
Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm thrilled to talk with our guest today, Charmaine Wilkerson, because it's it's interesting to me the way I sometimes meet other writers, and that's meet with quotation marks around it, because I met Charmaine Wilkerson when she submitted 100 Word Stories to my other writing endeavor, something I don't talk a lot about on this show, uh, a magazine called 100 Word Story. And we loved her stories and published them. Uh, so it was really wonderful to be online one day and see that her book, Black Cake, had come out to great acclaim. And then later, it was exciting to see that it became a New York Times bestseller and a hashtag read with Jenna book club pick and, and more. In fact, a, a screen series based on the novel is currently under development for Hulu. This doesn't happen to, to most of the writers we publish in 100 Word Story. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to meet you in this new sense, Charmaine, as a published novelist on our podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really great to be here. Also, because one of the things I love about your work, Grant, is that you you love flash fiction, microfiction, but you also love the world of the novel and often we don't have people loving both at the same time. It's fascinating. I sometimes call myself a schizophrenic writer because you're right. There aren't many people who do both. <laughs> so thank you so much. And then that's why it was a, such a wonderful surprise to see that you'd written a novel. And, you know, since I first became acquainted with you because of your flash fiction, I'd love to begin there uh, because I, I read that you started Black Cake not as a novel, but as a short scene about two teenage girls swimming in Caribbean waters in the 1960s. And then you wrote some other somewhat unrelated scenes set in contemporary times. And then at a certain point, you realized that they were the same story and, and that the story was a novel. And I love this as a, as a as a genesis story for a novel because it seems as if the novel found you as much as you found the novel. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that initial spark of realization. Yes. So you mentioned, first I'll talk about it from the point of view of just the story. You mentioned these teenage girls who swim. They're, they're open water swimmers. They're exceptionally strong and they're obsessed with the sea. And this um, part, this dimension in their lives will then affect their destinies. So basically I was writing, I just had this scene of these people. What would it take to be so driven um, by something that you would uh, end up changing your life completely, even without meaning to, but because you're running up against the expectations of other people and what you're doing doesn't quite fit with the plans they have for you. So that was kind of the idea. And I was just writing, but this is something I do all the time, and this is why I think I got into flash fiction, and that is I tend to write in short scenes. That's how I write, always. And so despite the fact that I'm a chatterbox, when I get to the page, I just sort of spit out a little scene, spit out an idea, and then I move on. And so this idea, I thought it was a short story, and then it began to grow. In the meantime, in typical fashion, I had penned a story about this uh, 30-something woman in, in, present day, in the present day who dressed up in an animal costume to earn money on the weekends, as many people do. And I thought that was a separate story. And then I had all of this other stuff I was just writing. 
And yes, one day I realized that the, the girls in the 1960s in the Caribbean were beginning to grow their lives. And they were doing this, you know, not at my behest. They were just growing in my imagination. And then things began to connect. I realized that I was writing a multi-generational story about people in the 1960s in the Caribbean and the UK and people in present-day California and also New York, but really a pair of siblings born and raised in California. And somehow they came together as this story of these two adults who lose their mother and realize she has a hidden past. And then it becomes more distinctive because that's, that's a kind of trope you find in a lot of stories. Someone dies and, oops, you find out there's a whole other story behind that. But going back to your question, that's, that's exactly it. I write down ideas as they come to me, and I don't worry about where they're going. And most of the stuff I've written, I've never actually submitted as stories. I mean, I have not published that much, and I have not, I don't think I've even written that much, but I have written a lot of small scenes, and I realized that this was coming together. Hmm. It's so interesting to hear. And, and I wonder how many other writers have that realization. I, I feel like it must be common, that aha moment. Um, and, you know, Grant and I had been talking about omission, how it's a crucial tool of fiction. And it's a craft tool that often isn't talked much about. It's not really taught, even though it's so important to good writing. And I read a comment where you said, I've written passages that were quite spare, even cryptic. I believe that a scene can carry sufficient information and emotional weight for the reader, even without all the particulars. A mission has presence too. So it sounds like you're very conscious of using omission in your craft. And I wondered if you could speak to how omission guides your writing. Well, certainly if you're writing a story about stories that are not told, um, omission certainly is useful. But just in terms of structure, when I write, you know, we're all readers, right? So we're, we all love to read. And I think probably we grew up with that idea, that concept in poetry known as white space. But people don't always talk about white space in prose. Well, I believe that in storytelling, it's there. And that is you know, when we're having a conversation, I might say to you, oh, Brooke, you know, I saw Grant down at the, you know, that place. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and we might talk that way. Well, what if we write a story that way? Meaning you write and you touch on points that make sense maybe to the reader and the reader can go the rest of the distance on their own. And so I do believe that in structure, omission can be lovely. You can write many sensory details or you can just leave out stuff. And I tend to write uh, stories in which I don't always say where the people are, what the name is, you know, and I often do that. That tends to be my style. And I think that having written and read flash fiction sort of gave me a kind of permission, a kind of permission to use that in longer form writing. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Totally. Um, I say the same thing oftentimes, Charmaine, is that I've actually learned so much from writing the shorter fiction. It's really informed my longer fiction much more than, than the opposite. I, I, I think I love your, your phrase of, of using white space for prose writers and, and kind of thinking about how white space works in poetry and then adapting it for prose. But, you know, going back to what Brooke asked, I'm not sure that there is a way for me to answer very 
clearly that question in the sense that I do not sit down at the laptop or, or you know, with a, with a piece of paper and a pencil. I don't sit down saying, I'm going to write these details and not those. I just sort of write as it comes to me. Part of that is in the head, and that's what gets omitted. And the other part is what you're communicating. And certainly when you go back and you're editing your work, or in my case, hello, new world, I actually have publishers who say, um, gee, we'd love to hear a little bit more about what Grant and Brooke do when they're not writing. <laughs> they don't tell you exactly what to put, but you think about that. But what I know is that even in the editing process, I really, some things I didn't want to say, and I didn't think that I needed to. I'm a reader and I trust the reader. And I think it's fun sometimes to not have all the details. Definitely. That's so interesting. And I love the, the trusting the reader too, because I think omission invites the reader in, in a very interesting way as a kind of co-creator of the story. And just to go one step beyond craft, omission has a big existential place in your novel as well. Um, one crucial part of any family story is actually the stories that aren't told or aren't fully revealed. And I like how you you put the cake at the center of your narrative. In fact, you've said the cake symbolizes the history of this family. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about how the cake symbolizes the family history and the role it plays in the novel. So the cake, uh, called black cake by many Caribbeans, I don't call it that, I call it rum cake, but the point is black cake is a traditional Caribbean fruitcake made on a number of different islands, and it, it symbolizes in the most immediate sense joy, celebration, Christmas time, and weddings. These are the two big occasions. And it's made by soaking a lot of fruit, and there are certain spices, and it really reflects the islands because there's rum and there's dark brown cane sugar and there's certain spices. But the fruit, for example, the fruits that are soaked in the rum tend to be things like raisins and currants and dates. And some of these really are northern products. They don't necessarily come from the tropical climate or islands. And what I loved about the black cake is, one, there's the cake which is held up as this end-all, be-all tradition for celebrations. But in fact, it's tied to the good old-fashioned English plum pudding. And what the way in which the cake symbolizes what is happening in this particular family and what happens in the Caribbean culture is that if you think, how did something go from the English culture as a plum pudding at Christmas time to this cake using slightly different ingredients, but basically a cake that follows the same idea? How does one become the other? Well, you go from a past in which there was colonialism, people moving from one area to the other. You go to a past in which rum and sugar were produced using forced labor, aka slavery, and then later indentured servitude. And you have a cake which, if you put it in front of me, it's wonderful. But if you look at the past, you see a whole history for better or worse. And so the cake for that family also represented their mother loved this cake. She was obsessed with making it. She leaves a cake in her freezer for her children. It's, it's supposed to be tied to her hidden past. And so that becomes a symbol. What has she never told them? And a lot of it isn't good. And so that's, that's the way in which the cake grows as a symbol. Even though I, when I realized that I was writing a novel, 
there was no cake as yet. The cake just kind of walked into the story. So beautifully articulated, uh, Charmaine, and it just we're really circling this the role of omission in in your fiction and in other ways too. And Grant and I couldn't help but note your New York Times review where they said about you that uh, she approaches her plot like a mad chef grabbing ingredients from all over the world, slicing and dicing with abandon, tossing characters and palm fronds and a few drops of rum into a pot and letting it all come to a simmer. Uh, And it goes on and it's just really a delightful review. I was curious though, how did you feel about that description of your writing process? Well, I thought it made it sound as though it was more about food than it was. Of course, it's about diaspora of food, and food is very important in the novel. Um, and it also makes it sound as though perhaps it's more comic than it is. Mm. But what I loved, you know, about that is that that description does capture a certain element in this novel, I think, and in, 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 in many things that I read and enjoy. And that is, In this particular case, I think the book is a bit like a conversation. So, you know, we're looking at, I'm I'm telling you a story. And then the next week we see each other and I'm telling you the same story, but now I've added something. And so in that respect, the metaphor, the idea of the mad chef throwing things in, it's more like just a series of conversations where the more you go forward and the more you jump from one character to another, you begin to gather some of those things that have been omitted. So that in theory, by the end of the story, you do have a bigger picture. You do know a bit more. But even at the end, I feel that certain things are omitted. And, you know, that was the intention. Well, Charmaine, I love that when the character Benny finally finds her mother's recipe um, tucked away in a, a junk drawer. It doesn't have any instructions or measurements. It's a, it's a series of hints for how to proceed. And I, I think this is interesting because one, it just begs, what is the definition of a recipe? And, you know, in some ways the recipe is beside the point. It's about imparting the hints and, and then you have to fill in the blanks as, as a child or as a, a reader, really. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just very curious. This must have been a conscious decision to impart the recipe like this. And I'm curious what, what your thoughts were about it and why you did imparted it that way. Well, you know, I'm, I think I'm very much a channeler and I'm the kind of person who once a character or scene or idea comes to mind, it sort of, it tends to lead me by the nose, which doesn't mean that I don't go back and make conscious decisions here or there. But that scene with Benny looking for the recipe and pulling it out and taking a look at that, that scene came later in the writing, yeah? And it just emerged that way and made sense. So it was almost Benny recognizing this and me thinking, right, you probably want a much more conscious and studied approach, but that's what happened. It made sense in the imaginary landscape of Benny and Byron's world and their mother. And, and the funny thing for me is that, um, you know, this story, although it does involve a Caribbean American family and uses a lot, a lot of details, which I've stolen from things I've either seen or read or heard. When I say details, you know, it could be, uh, you know, what a wedding is like, or, you know, running out into the garden to catch lizards, things like that. Nonetheless, um, the black cake 
was when it walked into the story, I recognized a real life inspiration. Um, namely, my mother made a fantastic black cake. I mean, it was legendary. And she made my sister's wedding cake and she made part of a wedding cake for a cousin. And she always made the Christmas cakes. So this was a definitely the, the sense of a certain recipe uh, having importance like that came from my mother. But she, on the other hand, she sent me a recipe that was filled with detail. And not only details, it was also filled with comments and notes, everything from her planned retirement to the trouble she had getting the cake dark enough, which is something that I've had trouble with too. In order to get the cake dark enough, you have to do something called blacking. And that means burning a lot of brown sugar. And you might think you have enough and then you look at the batter and then you do more. So it's interesting that when that happened to Benny in the story, it really did make sense because their lives and their what was happening to them was so specific. And that was, of course, they wouldn't have gotten a recipe like the one that I received from my own mother. Well, in closing, Charmaine, I've read several articles about your admiration for the Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. And since it deals with the story of mothers and daughters aiming to understand one another across generations and cultures, I'm curious how much your own book grew from that or, you know, how much it may be your in conversation with the Joy Luck Club. It's interesting. I'm not sure that it grew specifically from that in the sense that I've loved that book for years. I read it so long ago. I did reread it, but years ago. And um, But I think that everything we read, yeah, like everything that we live, feeds into the landscape of the imagination. And when I did read Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club, I loved the idea of, again, misunderstanding between generations, but also a misunderstanding that crosses cultural divides, where the younger generation should be understanding the older and vice versa, but really they are of different cultures, simply by dint of the fact that uh, the children have grown up in another environment. So I would say that it's probably something with which I could relate. And I love the Joy Luck Club for using this basic conflict between generations and across cultures to teach us something about history, teach us something about culture, but still be very universal in its basic connection between the older and the younger generations, wanting to be loved, wanting to love one another, wanting to be understood, wanting to understand one another. That's so interesting, Charmaine. Thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to um, to have a chance to chat with you. Yeah, and thank you for joining us all the way from Rome and good luck with all your endeavors. Thank you. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Well, hey, Brooke, I thought it would be kind of funny, not funny, to talk about the trend of canceling as part of a mission, since you're kind of omitting someone when you cancel them. And, and there's been so much canceling going on, of course. Yeah, indeed. Um, in fact, I was even part of a canceling situation recently because I sit on the board of the Bay Area Book Festival and the festival disinvited Alice Walker to the festival this year, which people can read about. It's pretty common knowledge. Uh, but while the board stands firmly behind that very complex decision, being in the middle of that hot and heavy cancel culture moment was really upsetting. Uh, and it reminded me of how complex these things are in part because in so many cases, both parties or both sides are right and wrong <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine how um, emotionally um whatever, taxing, draining, uh, complex that that was. Um, I'm curious about your what you just said, that both sides are wrong and both are right. Can you say more about that? Well, I was thinking, like, let's take the case of Woody Allen, whose memoir was famously canceled by his publisher a couple years ago. And in that case, the folks who wanted the book to be canceled were the staff of the publisher, right? And I think they were right because Woody Allen has a very... Uh, checkered past. And a lot of people believe that his power and privilege allowed him to get away with terrible things. But then the people who decried his cancellation are also not wrong because we're in a country that values free speech. It's part of our constitution. You know, we still live in a free country. Uh, and even though I hasten to say, you know, it feels less free with each passing month. But it seems to me, you know, that people who worry about rights and freedoms being eroded are right to worry about cancel culture as the thought police. Uh, you know, this feeling that people are telling you what you're supposed to do or how you're allowed to think. Yeah, this is a topic that's just rife with complexity and beyond the space that we even have here to talk about it, because I think uh, we could dedicate a one or two hour show to it quite easily. And each case that I've read, as you point out, each case is, is different and unique unto itself, I think, even though there's a lot of commonality between them. But they're, they're very layered and demand a lot of, I think, exploration and thought. The only thing that I do know is that in book publishing, you're bound to step into these landmines from time to time. You know, it's just part of the landscape these days. Unfortunately, yes. And this year was not my first brush with cancel culture. I've actually been in the middle of it a couple of other times during my time at Seal Press. There was a moment where we got threats of being boycotted due to some racial insensitivity uh, on the part of the press at the time. And in retrospect, the accusers were not wrong, you know, and uh, but the problem was that this canceling or call out culture that happened doesn't always lead to the results that the accusers want. And sometimes it sets people with similar goals against each other. I've certainly found that. Um, and then at She Writes, we had a brush with canceling too, <laughs> when a group of influencers on Bookstagram took an issue with a book cover that we did because it was cultural appropriation. Um, and in that case, the image that we had chosen for the front cover was a white author wearing her traditional Chinese wedding gown. Uh, but that was really complex because the author had lived in China and married a Chinese man but we did change our cover. And I actually thought in that case, the discourse was very proactive between us and the people who were asking us for the change. Uh, but still being in the middle of these experiences is super hard. And I think invariably people have mixed feelings about the outcomes uh, and what gets achieved and by what means. Yeah, I can see that. And especially with the political divides involved as well. And, and more and more, I think, uh, you know, you see conservatives calling out the progressives for trying to control what they can and can't take in and, you know, leveling insults like snowflake, that they're too delicate to handle it. 
But often the types of canceling you're talking about are initiated because the words of the author or the cover image are legitimately hurtful in that they're, you know, promoting stereotypes or, or racist sentiments or, or just being insensitive. Um, the intention on the part of the cancelers is to protect vulnerable communities, um, but then sometimes it, it can also backfire. Well, exactly. And cancel culture is happening on both sides. You know, mostly the progressive sphere gets blamed for it. I think Dr. Seuss, you know, when the right seized on that moment when the Seuss estate put out a print, a few books that had deep racial stereotyping going on. But then there's book banning, which is the domain of the right. And they're banning up the wazoo, you know, as we've discussed on our show, um, and mostly books that center race and LGBTQ issues. Um, and, you know, that's often not called cancel culture, but that, of course, is exactly what it is. Yeah, definitely. And I, th I think, you know, one thing about the Dr. Seuss books that I think many commenters overlooked or missed was that the family actually made that decision. It was an act of self-canceling or self-reckoning, not caving into external pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's all very thought-provoking and very emotional and just so difficult in many ways. Um, I hope, though, that this general discussion and the frequency with which it's happening, you know, makes us better writers, readers, and people. It's all been a reminder to me to to step back and not go with the crowd for each story to, you know, to really take time to explore and think about the story, um, you know, what happened and why. And my father was a lawyer and he was always preaching about due process. So I think it's important to be mindful that there's often more than one side to the story. My gosh, so true. So we got a trend, a life lesson and sage advice all wrapped into one grant. Thank you for that. It's uh, just like our show. As everyone knows, we're a weekly inspiration. We've got trends, lessons, and advice all wrapped into a nice little weekly package for you. So thank you all so much for listening. As always, we're grateful to you. We will be back in your queue next week. <laughs>